Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be finishing our chat about the history of flight, finishing off what has become a three-part tour of the story of one of the most important technologies in human history. There is so much to talk about when it comes to flight and aviation, and in the last two episodes, we have gotten across so much of it. We've talked about the origins of human flight, our often unsuccessful and sometimes very lethal investigations into flight, Talked about tower jumps and ornithopters and rudimentary gliders and all sorts of other stuff. We didn't make much progress with flight for hundreds and hundreds of years, really, as we talked about two weeks ago. But then in the last few hundred years, last few centuries, we've bucked up our ideas quite significantly. Lighter than air flight with balloons and airships in the 18th and 19th centuries before the 20th century brought us heavier than air flight. That's what we talked about two weeks ago, lighter than air flight and all the stuff that led up to the 20th century, uh, which is what we were talking about last week, right? The advent of heavier than air flight and how the aviation industry got off to what I guess you could call an absolute flyer. Uh, the, the first aeroplanes developed very quickly indeed. They were militarised and then demilitarised during and then after the First World War. Uh, and as the decades passed, they became a bigger and bigger part of human civilization. After the First World War, civilian aviation emerged for entertainment and travel and logistics, with all sorts of technological developments continuing to improve aircraft of all kinds. Uh, last week, we also talked about the golden age of airships, which ended very abruptly in the late 1930s as the Hindenburg went up in flames, along with most people's interest in the continued use of airships. And we wrapped things up last week at the end of the 1930s, with the Second World War about to begin, and it's there that we're going to pick things up today. Another long one, another long one coming your way here, so let's get into it, let's strap ourselves in and finally finish off our very lengthy run-through of the history of flight. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1939, to the beginning of the Second World War. Now, the last two decades have seen planes evolve from wooden cloth biplanes uh, to metal monoplanes with cantilever wings, That's, that is wings that don't have braces or supports holding them in place. And while the planes of 1939 are faster and sturdier and able to travel greater distances than ever before, they are about to get a lot better as we head into the biggest and deadliest conflict in human history, the Second World War. Um, aviation is about to change forever as unprecedented amounts of resources are poured into improving aeroplanes and everything to do with them as both the Allied and Axis powers struggled for air supremacy. I'm not going to talk too much about specific events from the Second World War. I'm not going to spend ages talking about specific battles or things that took place, but rather we're just going to have an, an overview of the way that flight and aviation changed between 1939 and 1945, and of course, why it changed, not just how. To begin with, it's worth noting that Germany was forbidden from having an air force altogether under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. But like so much else in the treaty, Hitler ultimately ignored this restriction. Initially, military pilots were trained in secret. And then in 1935, the Luftwaffe, the Nazi Air Force, was publicly announced as part of Nazi Germany's rearmament. And at the outset of the war, the Luftwaffe was perhaps the most powerful air force in the world, partly due to Nazi pilots flying and testing the latest aviation technology during the Spanish Civil War. This gave Nazi pilots valuable combat experience, and so they were naturally amongst the best in the world, purely because they had done it more than other pilots that hadn't seen you know, frontline combat. The Nazis went from being banned from having an air force to having what was probably the best air force in the world in just a few short years, which gave them a real head start on the Allies as the war began. And it also meant that aerial warfare was bound to be a big part of the conflict, given that Nazi Germany's air superiority simply had to be contested, lest it overrun the Allies from the outset altogether. 
And of course, one of the most famous aerial campaigns of the Second World War was the Blitz, wherein the Nazis relentlessly bombed cities in the UK for months and months across 1940 and 1941. And this brings me to talk about the most important aspect of aerial warfare during the Second World War, bombing. Even before the war began, much of the focus when it came to aerial warfare was bombing building bigger and better bombers and ways to make sure that they were able to do what they needed to do. When we think of aerial combat, we think of skirmishing and dogfighting high in the sky. This is what comes to mind when thinking about about war in the skies, particularly during the Second World War. But a lot of that was just window dressing for what really mattered, which was getting bombers through to drop their payloads. And the reason that fighter planes were sent up was to either escort or intercept bombers as they were sent to 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 drop their bombs. And so for that reason, the much more flashy and exciting air-to-air combat is is, is tend to what t- tend to be what ate up the headlines. But really the overarching objective of all of these aerial campaigns was to drop as many bombs as often as possible. Millions and millions of tons of bombs were dropped during the Second World War. And one of the primary ongoing goals of all the air forces that took part was ensuring that they had the ability to drop bombs on their chosen targets throughout the war. And this was both strategic bombing, in the sense that you just carpet bomb an entire area and hope that you hit stuff that matters, and tactical bombing, which was, which is to say, aiming at specific targets designed to inflict maximum damage on, on key pieces of infrastructure, military installations, what have you, right? And so bombing, perhaps more than anything else, is what influenced the development of aviation technology throughout the Second World War. How? Let's get into it. Starting with something relatively straightforward, plane engines. If you want a plane to travel a long distance carrying a heavy payload, it needs to have a powerful engine, obviously. And so making better and stronger and higher performance engines was an absolute priority for for aviation engineers everywhere. Engine power increased and increased, allowing bombers greater range and greater payload capacity. But that's only half the story, because these bombers had to get above their targets. And to do that, they needed fighter escorts. Without fighters to escort them, the big, slow, lumbering bombers that didn't have much in the way of uh, quick maneuverability, they could be shot down by enemy fighters. And so fighter planes were built to be swifter and more maneuverable than ever before. And the Nazis developed engines that could power extremely quick and nimble fighter planes, fighters that could do things like fly upside down without the engines cutting out. This was a technological development that eluded the Allies for some time. However, while the Nazi Messerschmitt Bf 109 was fast and manoeuvrable, it was outpaced in terms of firepower, as British Hurricanes and Spitfires had twice as many guns. After seeing the Nazis' capabilities in the air in the early stages of the war, using the Luftwaffe to support ground invasions of Poland and France and the Low Countries, the Allies very quickly prioritised air warfare and attempted to catch up to the Luftwaffe. Across Europe and Russia and North Africa, The tide slowly turned against the Nazis as the Allies focused on leveraging the advantages offered by a few key factors. Firstly, radar. The British in particular had access to much better radar technology than the Nazis, and this enabled them to utilise their air force, even if it was at a disadvantage in material terms, they were able to use tactically or strategically much more effectively. They could detect oncoming wings of Nazi aircraft and speedily get ready to defend themselves, uh, such as in the Battle of Britain. And later in the war, the British used air-to-ground radar to enable bombing runs through cloud and at night. Again, we come back to bombing. That really is the most important part of aerial warfare during this conflict. There is no getting away from it. And so... The second factor that the Allies were able to exploit here is, in fact, bombing. The British focused on bombing Nazi airfields wherever they could, and this proved decisive, particularly in the Mediterranean, where the Allies staged a large-scale invasion in 1944. And there, the Luftwaffe were, by this stage, completely outclassed by the Allies. And so the Allies pushed for air supremacy, that is, uh, an operational capacity to do whatever they wanted in the skies without resistance from the Nazis. So by the time we get to 1944, this focus, this this idea that 
the Allies needed to gain air supremacy. This was an objective that, largely speaking, was met that year. The Luftwaffe all but collapsed as the war progressed and continued. And by the time we get to 1944, the Nazis aren't really able to meaningfully resist the air-based campaigns of the Allies. They had a huge lead to begin with, but they completely squandered it. And by the end of the war, thankfully, they were left in the dust. What did this mean in material terms? Well, I can, I can give you a few examples. At the famous D-Day landings in Normandy, the Luftwaffe was barely a factor, meaning that the Allies were able to fly their bombers in deep into Nazi-held territory and drop thousands of bombs as they landed on the beaches. And these, these Allied bombers no longer required fighter escorts. There was nothing to escort them through. There was nothing to contest them. So Allied bombing campaigns continued and expanded and laid waste to the Nazis across the European continent. And the US in particular had designed and built extremely effective long-range heavy bombers, the Boeing B-29 Superfortress, which we'll come back to in a moment. The point I'm making here is that planes got better and better and better throughout the Second World War, generally with one single objective in mind. And this is, this is in fairness, a simplification, but I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty reasonable one. The primary focus of aviation during this period in history was to improve the capacity of aeroplanes to carry and drop bombs. So let's take the military aspect out of this equation here and think about what this means more broadly for aviation as a whole. It means that aviation engineers are looking for ways, once again, to make planes faster and stronger than ever before. These planes have to get to their appointed location as quickly as possible, carrying as much weight as possible. And really, when you think about it, the fact that they're carrying bombs is irrelevant. Well, it, it's probably not irrelevant to the people that the bombs are being dropped on, I suppose I should say. But you can see what I'm driving at here. Modern commercial aviation is still, in a very real way, seeking to do exactly what the aviation engineers of the 1940s were seeking to do carry heavy loads around at as great a speed and as efficiently as possible. So you can see then how aviation was so strongly influenced by the Second World War and the overarching importance of strategic and tactical bombing throughout the entire conflict. Now, as I say, this is something of a simplification, and there certainly were other important developments as well on top of this. Uh, for instance, the manufacturing of aircraft was prioritised like never before, and the actual processes by which aeroplanes were made became faster and more efficient, so more planes could be jammed into the sky. Similarly, more and more infrastructure was built to support these air forces on the ground. More airfields, more runways, more aerodromes, more of everything that's needed to support aeroplanes when they aren't flying through the sky. And finally, there was a renewed focus on obtaining what quickly became strategic resources, aluminium to build the planes and fuel to power them. In short, because aeroplanes were such a huge and critical part of the Second World War, they became a much more entrenched part of human civilization. Because by the time the war ended, by the time we emerged from the Second World War, aviation is just too big a part of human life to put back on the shelf and forget about. The industry had advanced so much in such a short time that the world would just never be the same again. But talking about the end of the Second World War brings us very neatly full circle back to where we opened the discussion about this conflict when it came to aviation, because the thing that concluded the Second World War once and for all was the one thing that everyone involved in aviation during this period in history had been focusing on so strongly throughout the entire conflict. There was one priority for aviation engineers, and that was bombing. And it was, of course, bombing that ended the conflict. The Allies were able to bomb the Nazis into oblivion. They forced their surrender as the smoking ruin of Berlin was captured, while other cities like Hamburg and Dresden were flattened by Allied bombs. And while the surrender of the Nazis did ultimately require a ground invasion of the German heartlands, culminating, as I say, with the fall of Berlin, these sustained Allied bombing campaigns were critical in securing the victory in Europe and the capitulation of the Nazis. But it was a very different story in the Pacific theatre. 
to force the surrender of the Japanese. A ground invasion was not required, although it was prepared for. And instead of a ground invasion, US President Harry S. Truman unleashed a weapon the likes of which had never been seen on Earth before. A nuclear bomb. And once again, we are back to bombs and bombing. Remember I mentioned before the Boeing B-29 Super Fortress, this uh, American long-range heavy bomber? I said we'd come back to it. Well, by 1945, the B-29 Super Fortress represented the pinnacle of aviation technology. A pressurised cabin, computer-controlled targeting systems, a maximum speed of 575 kilometres per hour, a range of over 2,500 kilometres while carrying a bombing payload. 50 years ago, we didn't even have people flying in powered aircraft. And now there is a plane that can carry five tonnes of bombs over 2,500 kilometres. And it was, of course, none other than a B-29 Super Fortress, nicknamed Enola Gay, that dropped the first nuclear bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, on the 6th of August, 1945. And three days later, another B-29, Boxcar, dropped a second bomb on Nagasaki, and with two of their cities obliterated, turned to radioactive wastelands in the blink of an eye, the Japanese surrendered less than a week later, and the Second World War was over. So when I tell you that bombing really was the most important aspect of aviation during the Second World War, I hope by now you can see that that's true. However, I don't want to spend this whole episode talking about military aviation. And so what we're going to do now is a very quick overview of military-related flight between the end of the Second World War and today before moving on to talk in more depth about civilian aviation. As the Second World War gave way to the Cold War, military aviation remained a huge priority for powerful nations around the world, particularly, of course, the US and the USSR. The rise of digital computing modernised military aircraft everywhere as avionic systems incorporated things like navigation, communication, targeting systems, and so much more. All of this was brought into the digital age. Modern air forces developed to include fighter jets to secure air superiority, bombers to attack ground-based targets, helicopter gunships to support ground operations, and transport aircraft for logistics. Fighters became faster than ever, in no small part thanks to the jet engine, which we'll come to, and began to be armed with missiles due to how machine guns become less effective at such high speeds. Today, we're up to the fifth generation of fighter planes, with the US, China and Russia all having their own models designed for speed, manoeuvrability, stealth and range. In the nuclear age, bombers were a terrifyingly deadly threat that could travel increasingly long distances and threaten a nuclear strike from thousands of kilometres away. And uh, bombers also began to make use of stealth technology to avoid improvements in radar and other detection technology. You can go online and have a look at a picture of the Northrop Grumman B-2 Spirit. This is a long-range stealth bomber that looks like something from Tetris. No idea how it stays in the air. Maybe that's, maybe that's how it gets past radar. When radar scans it, it thinks, oh, well, there's no way that's a plane. No way. I mean, look how ridiculous it is. I'm not going not gonna to ping any alarms for that. Clearly not a, a long-range heavy bomber. Um, helicopters, too, became a more common sight on combat front lines with attack helicopters, still a big part of warfare today. We'll come back to helicopters in a little bit. Finally, the deployment of many of these aircraft changed enormously as advances were made not just in the air, but also on the sea. Aircraft carriers today are more colossal than ever, with the US's Gerald R. Ford-class aircraft carriers being the biggest warships ever constructed over 330 metres long, capable of carrying 75 or more aircraft, these massive aircraft carriers are one of the most incredible embodiments of military might that the world has ever seen. They are able to project hard political power essentially anywhere around the world. They do, however, I feel obliged to tell you this, they do have a very entertaining design flaw, however. The Gerald R. Ford-class aircraft carrier's waste systems were not properly designed, and when it comes to handling the sheer volume of, uh, well, waste that is produced by the thousands and thousands of people aboard them, it appears that these aircraft carriers are not quite up to the task. Whenever the toilet systems aboard get clogged, check this out, 
it costs 400,000 US dollars to use a chemical flush to clean them out so they work again. And this floor is irreparable. It's not going anywhere. They keep having to do this over and over again on these aircraft carriers. Imagine being the person to drop off the last turd that blocked up the system so the $400,000 flush has to, had to happen. Anyway, look, I, I don't know how we started talking about poos and wheeze on a serious podcast about the history of flight. Sorry about that, everyone. No idea how it happens. We, we can move on. Let's move on from the military. Let's head back to the post-war era to talk about civilian aviation. And I want to talk to you uh, about three things in this realm. Firstly, the breaking of the sound barrier and supersonic flight. Secondly, the expansion of commercial air travel, which is very directly related to the third thing that I want to get across, the jet engine and how aeroplane designs and capabilities changed as a result of this new technology. So let's start then by talking about yet another aviation milestone, one that was broken on the 14th of October 1947, when American pilot Brigadier General Chuck Yeager flew a rocket-powered Bell X-1 aircraft faster than the speed of sound. And yep, you heard correctly, rocket-powered. Let's step back a little bit and talk about that. The overwhelming majority of planes flown during the Second World War were engine-powered propeller planes. But that's not to say there weren't other types. Specifically, uh, research into and development of jet engines was well and truly underway during the Second World War, but they weren't quite widespread by 1945, and we'll come back to jet engines in just a little, uh, in just a little bit. But the other method of propulsion that was investigated was rockets. Now, you probably associate rockets with space travel, something that we're not going to be talking about in this episode. Uh, But no, rockets aren't just for going to space. In fact, rockets have been around for longer than aeroplanes. The Chinese were using gunpowder rockets back in the 13th century. They've been around for a long time. Uh, Rockets are used to fire missiles and torpedoes. You can use them to power ejector seats. You can even get rocket cars and bikes. So it's not just space rockets, although that's what obviously they're most famous for. And you can, of course, also use rockets to power planes. And people have been working on and testing rocket-powered plane designs since the 1920s. Nazi Germany and Japan built a few different rocket-powered fighter planes during the Second World War, but they were small in number and they didn't really catch on. But rocket planes are quick. I mean, as you might imagine, they are bloody quick. Uh, And in 1945, the US built the Bell X-1, their first ever rocket plane, and it was one of these Bell X-1s that was the first to break the sound barrier. Now, you might be wondering, what is breaking the sound barrier? It means to fly faster than the speed of sound, uh, which is variable. The speed of sound does change depending on various factors, air temperature, whatever else. But roughly speaking, it's around 1192 kilometers per hour at zero degrees centigrade. So it's very, very fast. But breaking the sound barrier isn't as simple as flying really fast because it puts a bunch of unique strains on an aircraft. As you approach the speed of sound, a bunch of things change about, you know, basic aerodynamics, drag and whatever else. And it means that special adaptations have to be made to make sure that a plane isn't going to fall to bits and kill its pilot. Flying faster than sound is very different to flying at subsonic speeds. The biggest issue is drag, as I say, which increases enormously when you go supersonic. You need extremely thin wings on an aeroplane, often swept back in a V shape, and the plane needs to find a balance between the flexibility to deal with the extreme forces put on it by supersonic flight, while also being rigid and strong enough to hold together in general flight. And you also need to be able to, you know, fly fast enough, which back then was only possible with a rocket engine, although these days jet engines are more than advanced enough for supersonic flight. The Bell X-1, however, was an experimental rocket plane and managed to break the sound barrier, as I mentioned before, on the 14th of October, 1947. Chuck Yeager became the first person in history to travel faster than the speed of sound. Now, interestingly, this wasn't the first time that humans broke the sound barrier. It was the first time that humans traveled at the speed of sound. But there is a device, a a very old invention, in fact, that was the first thing that humans ever used to break the sound barrier. And when I tell you what it is, you will do that thing where you go, oh, yeah, of course, it is the whip. Because when a whip is cracked, what you're hearing there is a sonic boom. 
You are hearing the end of the whip travel faster than the speed of sound. That's why whips make the noise that they do. We've had whips for hundreds, thousands of years maybe. And that is, long before the Bell X-1, the first thing that humans used to break the sound barrier. Although, of course, we weren't able to ride the whips as they uh, as they travelled faster than the speed of, uh, speed of sound. So the Bell X-1 is very important in that it enabled humans to travel faster than the speed of sound for the first time in our history. The X-1 painted bright orange was loaded into a B-29 Super Fortress's bomb bay and it was dropped out of the B-29 mid-flight, then sped up to reach Mach 1.06, that is 1.06 times the speed of sound, and a huge milestone was achieved, one that once broken led to all manner of other supersonic aircraft. Ever since the 1950s, major military powers like the US, the USSR and then Russia, France and China have all had fleets of supersonic fighter planes. Today, supersonic planes cannot just break the sound barrier, but travel several times faster than it. These planes are very bloody quick. The World Air Sports Federation, or FAI, is the custodian of airspeed records, and the current official record was set all the way back in 1976 when American pilots Eldon Joerge and George Morgan Jr. flew a Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird at 3,529.6 kilometers per hour, around about Mach 3.3. The SR-71 Blackbird is so fast that when it was threatened by a missile, right, its standard evasive procedure was just to speed up because a missile would not be able to catch it. That's how fast that plane was. Uh, but this is for a manned plane with a jet engine. That's the uh, that's the official record held by the FAI. There are other unofficial records, uh, such as when the American pilot William Pete Knight flew a rocket plane, a North American X-15, at 7,274 kilometres per hour back in 1967, which is Mach 6.7. And while we're talking about unofficial records, let's talk about the fastest manned atmospheric flight ever to have taken place. In 1981, American pilot Joe H. Engel piloted the Space Shuttle Columbia, reaching a speed of 28,000 kilometres per hour. But it was coming in from space with an atmospheric re-entry, so maybe that's cheating. I mean, they don't let you win the Olympic 100-metre sprint by starting off in a car and then jumping out. Anyway, supersonic planes are very common these days, usually in the world of military or scientific aviation, but there were a few, two to be exact, that were used for civilian travel, the Soviet Tupolev Tu-144 and the Franco-British Concorde, although neither are still flying around today. Ultimately, they were too expensive and not in demand enough. Uh, They could also only fly over oceans because of the sonic booms they created. And so despite being able to fly between New York and London in under three hours, supersonic passenger planes didn't end up sticking around. But their subsonic counterparts certainly have. Modern aviation is dominated by commercial passenger flights, and that's what we're going to chat about now. For this, we go back to before the Second World War, as I mentioned last week, to the interwar period where commercial aviation as an industry began to, I don't know, spread its wings, I suppose you could say. There are so many aviation and flight-related idioms. I, I never really thought about that before. Anyway, After the First World War, ex-military aircraft were put to all sorts of use. You'll remember the barnstormers from last week going around putting on air shows, and that's all well and good for the fast and manoeuvrable fighter planes. But what about things like heavy bombers? Well, from 1919 onwards, these planes were repurposed to carry people rather than bombs, and so passenger aviation began. 1919 saw the first scheduled international passenger service between London and Paris. Uh, the redesigned Aircode DH9A could carry four passengers, plus a pilot who sat in an open cockpit. Again, not quite the 853 passengers a fully loaded Airbus A380 can hold, but hey, it's early days. 1919 was also the year that saw the founding of the oldest airline that is still in operation today, the Dutch National Airline, KLM. And, uh, sorry, what's that? The, oh, the second oldest operating airline. Well, seeing as you've asked, I suppose I better tell you it is none other than Qantas, founded in 1920, the Australian National Airline. 
Uh, anyway, from this starting point way back around the beginning of the 1920s, passenger planes grew in size and capacity between the world wars, particularly in Britain and France, who led the way on commercial aviation. The thing is, these planes back then, uh, they still kind of look like toys. They are biplanes, they're made of wood, they're carrying maybe a dozen passengers at most. They were not what you would think of today as commercial airliners. But the industry continued to expand and things like runways and passenger terminals were constructed all around the world. Many airlines used seaplanes too, given how few runways there were to begin with. And eventually airliners began to be made out of metal, increasing their speed, durability and carrying capacity and bringing with them other new advancements for passenger comfort. Things like improved cabin heating and lighting and better windows. These commercial flights also carried mail, speeding on postal services around the world, but that's another story. Maybe we'll do a history of postal services one day. Uh, but the, the fact they carried mail was very important. Uh, it was one of the key ways that these airlines actually made money, uh, as just carrying passengers often wasn't enough to turn a profit. Anyway, this was the beginning of the commercial aviation industry, relatively small scale compared to what it is today. But as we've talked about, the Second World War saw so many resources poured into expanding and improving aviation for military purposes this was bound to impact civilian aviation as well. Planes looked very different by the end of the war, as heavy bombers like the B-29 or the Avro Lancaster were converted for commercial use. As I mentioned before, these planes were purpose-built to carry heavy loads great distances, and so they were well-suited to becoming passenger aeroplanes. Then again, I mean, they were also purpose-built to drop these heavy loads with pinpoint accuracy, which I should mention did not remain part of their operational capacity after being converted from bombers to airliners. I mean, can you imagine, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are approaching our destination. Please return to your seats and fasten your seatbelts and get ready to be dropped on the airport below us from 30,000 feet. I really don't know how airlines would be doing these days if uh, there was an impromptu skydive involved in getting to your destination every time you got on a plane. Anyway, these early post-war airliners, the Douglas DC-6, the Vickers Viscount, the Boeing 377 Stratocruiser, they all pioneered new levels of comfort for passengers. They had things like pressurised cabins, air conditioning, larger windows, noise reduction, better seating. Pressurised cabins in particular, very important, as it meant that a plane could fly above weather systems at tens of thousands of feet, meaning a higher cruising speed, a smoother and safer journey, and a much more efficient use of fuel in order to get to your destination. On that note, as these planes are more economical than ever before, with higher seating capacities, more cargo space, faster and more powerful engines with better fuel efficiency, well, I should say, not the 377, as all the aviation nerds listening will know all too well, but these planes, and many others like them, used a technology that was swiftly becoming eclipsed by the next big thing in aviation. And this brings us to the next thing that I want to talk about, the jet engine. All the planes we've talked about here, except obviously the rocket planes, uh, were powered by propellers. You look up a picture of a Douglas DC-6, very famous airliner, and you'll see it there with its four piston-driven propellers. Propeller airliners, or prop liners as they're sometimes called, dominated commercial air travel for the first decade after the Second World War. But as I've said, the next big thing is just around the corner. A jet engine, at its most basic, is a tube where air enters at the front has fuel added to it and is then burnt, which accelerates the air being blown out the back of the tube, so when it exits, it's moving much faster than before. This generates thrust, and thrust is what is needed to get a plane into the air and keep it there, for that matter. People had been working on jet engines for a long time. Way back at the beginning of the 20th century, engineers were experimenting with various jet engines. One of the problems, however, is that you needed the air to enter the engine at a decent speed in order for them to function, and that wasn't possible back in, you know, 1913. The planes just weren't flying fast enough. As time passed, however, and as technology advanced, functional jet engines became closer and closer to being realised as engineers worked away at the problem throughout the 1920s and 1930s. And in 1939, the world's first ever jet-powered flight took place on the 27th of August. A German pilot named Erich Wasitz successfully flew the Heinkel HE-178, a very funny-looking plane indeed. The HE-178 is just essentially a single jet engine with wings. The fuselage is basically just a jet engine. Uh, it wasn't long before this design was abandoned and instead the twin engine design became the norm. We still use it today. 
Both the Allied and Axis powers flew jet-powered fighter planes, although in relatively small numbers and not to all that much fanfare. However, after the war, research into jet engines for military planes continued, and by the time we get to the 1950s, more or less all combat aeroplanes used jet engines. And it was in that decade, in the 1950s, that the jet engine superseded the propeller on airliners as well. Propellers had a good run, but their time was up. They couldn't scale to faster speeds. Uh, as you got lower returns, the closer the propeller came to the speed of sound. It wasn't a question of designing a better propeller. The laws of physics are starting to interfere here. Propeller planes just have to give way to jet planes once you get to certain speeds. In the mid-1950s, uh, major international powers saw it as a point of pride during the Cold War to have a national commercial jet plane. The British had the de Havilland DH-106 Comet from 1952, although it was withdrawn due to ongoing issues. The Soviets introduced the Tupolev Tu-104 in 1956. The French got there in 1957 with the Sud Aviation's SE-210 Caravelle. While the US had the Boeing 707, the Douglas DC-8 and the Convair 880 in 1958, 59 and 1960 respectively. And if you go and look at pictures of all of these planes, you'll notice something very interesting. These planes don't look all that different from the planes that are flown around today. There's still a fair bit of development and improvement to be done on them in many, many ways. But in terms of external appearance, in a general sense, jetliners just haven't changed all that much. But I said there was development and improvement. Let's do a quick decade by decade rundown here. The 1960s saw jetliners incorporate turbofans into their engines, increasing their speed. The 1970s saw fuselages widened to allow the twin aisle seating arrangements like the ones you see in planes today. The 1980s saw smaller sized jetliners become able to make oceanic crossings, while the 1990s saw a new generation of jetliners like the Airbus A330 and the Boeing 747-400 enter the market with the most advanced engines and sophisticated flight systems yet seen. I should mention, I suppose, that propeller planes still exist, of course. I mean, even today, gas turbine-powered propellers uh, known as turboprops can still be found on smaller planes, usually used for regional short-distance passenger trips. Overall, however... Commercial flights became faster, quieter, more accessible, more efficient, and more widespread than ever before. And in this period of aviation, there weren't, broadly speaking, any hugely revolutionary changes to civilian aviation, just an ongoing concerted effort to improve the technology that already existed. The commercial aviation industry was supported on the ground with the construction of airports, with bigger runways and more advanced systems and processes to facilitate flight, things like baggage handling services, air traffic control, navigation and communication systems, carefully managed international flight schedules. These are the things that make civilian aviation possible. And speaking of civilian aviation, we should talk about more than just commercial passenger flights. Uh, in the back half of the 20th century, uh, aircraft started to be used in other civilian areas, industries from agriculture to tourism, uh, things like emergency services. Planes today are used to spray crops and fight fires. Tourists can take flights for sightseeing and pleasure. Patients are transported to hospital via plane and helicopter. Oh, helicopters. Oh, man. I completely forgot. Jeez, do we have time? We've, uh, all right, let's try, let's try to squeeze them in here. We touched upon helicopters two weeks ago um, with the ancient Chinese bamboo copters and da Vinci's rudimentary designs. But let's talk about helicopters as, as we know them today. Helicopters are a type of aircraft known as a rotorcraft. Their wings, if you like, spin on a rotor around a central mast. Uh, most helicopters have a main rotor with blades that run parallel to the ground, uh, and they spin above the cockpit. And then there's a second rotor, usually mounted on a tail perpendicular to the ground, known as the anti-torque rotor. And without the anti-torque rotor, the helicopter cockpit would just spin around in the opposite direction of its main rotor, which would certainly be very fun, but uh, wouldn't be very useful for flight. Uh, so the anti-torque rotor is needed to offset the rotation that would uh, be caused by the main rotor and keep the, uh, the cockpit steady. The word helicopter was coined by the French inventor Gustave de Ponton de Amicourt, who spent time working on them back in the mid-19th century, although without much success, it has to be said. He built a small steam-powered model that ne never got off the ground. 
1878, Italian engineer Enrico Forlanini flew a small unmanned model helicopter. It looked more like a weird TV aerial, to be honest. He flew it 12 metres into the air. It took off vertically, remained airborne for about 20 seconds. Not a bad start. The first successful powered rotorcraft flight that I could find. Uh, and there were many others who worked on rudimentary helicopters, including the famous American inventor Thomas Edison, but not very many people found success. In 1901, German inventor Hermann Gunswind flew a helicopter that he designed, possibly the first ever manned-powered heavier-than-air flight. Apparently he had it filmed, but the recording has been lost to history. And in 1907, another pair of French brothers, lots of lots of bloody brothers in aviation, aren't there? Uh, anyway, these two, Jacques and Louis Breguer, they designed and flew a quadcopter, sort of like the drones that you'd see today, although it was massive and unsteady and made of wood rather than, you know, plastic. Uh, it got about half a metre into the air, but it was so unsteady that it had to more or less be held up at each end, which is hardly flying at that point. Uh, also in 1907, French inventor Paul Cornu designed a tandem rotor helicopter. You can go online and see pictures of it. It looks like a bicycle, a washing line, and a shopping trolley are having a threesome. Uh, but it could fly, sort of. Cornu managed to get it to stay in the air for 20 seconds at the height of 30 centimetres. Not metres, centimetres. That is like a foot for all the Americans listening. Not hugely impressive. No, look, it took a long time and a lot of very clever engineering for people to crack the case on the helicopter. And before people got there with the helicopter, other types of rotorcraft rose to the fore. Uh, in the 1920s, a Spanish bloke named Juan de la Sierva invented the autogyro, a type of rotorcraft that has some important but very boring differences from a helicopter. Can't upset the aviation nerds here. Uh, autogyros, like planes, need a source of horizontal thrust in order to fly. Usually this means that they have a propeller either at the front of them, like a normal plane, or more commonly these days, behind them, like a ship would with its propeller. Um, and this difference means that Dilasieva's autogyro just looks like a plane and a helicopter had a child together. It really is just a plane with a rotor for a hat. Go online and have a look at it. It is ridiculous. But all the same, this autogyro was functional and able to fly. It was the world's first practical rotorcraft, and Dilasieva flew it from London to Paris, presumably to the sound of mocking laughter as he took off and landed. It does really look extremely dumb. Sorry, Juan. Anyway, it's still not a helicopter for that. We'll whiz through the 1920s and the 1930s, through all the inventors and engineers that did their best to design a working helicopter, a rotorcraft that could just take off vertically without any horizontal thrust. It is difficult to say who came up with the first helicopter. Was it the Soviets when Boris Yuryev and Alexei Cherimukhin designed a helicopter that had two anti-torque rotors, one at each end? So imagine two helicopters in a video game that are sort of clipped uh, into each other nose to nose. That's what we're looking at here. Uh, or was it the Nazis who built another type of weird helicopter known as a syncropter, uh, which has two intermeshing rotors? that look ridiculous, but get rid of the need for an anti-torque rotor on a tail? Or was it just that French bloke we talked about earlier, Paul Cornu, with his bicycle slash washing machine slash shopping trolley masterwork? Look, I'm not going to get into who was first, because like with so many other areas of flight, there are so many conditionals as to what kind of first it was, powered or unpowered, manned or unmanned, free or tethered, etc. No, Instead, I'm going to tell you about the Russian-born American aviation pioneer Igor Sikorsky, who, in 1939, designed a flying contraption known as the Vort Sikorsky VS-300. And as you can see from pictures of the VS-300, it was where the blueprint for most modern helicopters originated. It has a single main rotor to provide vertical lift, a single tail with a vertical plane anti-torque rotor, uh, just like 99% of the helicopters you see today. And yes, I know there are tandem helicopters, transverse helicopters, quadcopters, I know, but most of the helicopters you see day to day all stem back to the VS-300 in terms of their basic design. The VS-300 was quickly developed into the Sikorsky R4, which during the Second World War became the world's first mass-produced helicopter. After the war, the Bell 47 became the first helicopter approved for civilian flight, and thousands and thousands of them were made. And while helicopters were improved further and further as the years went on, much like how jetliners didn't have changes made to their fundamental designs from a certain point onwards, 
Even the most modern helicopters today have the same basic layout as the old VS-300. In the 1950s, turbine engines were incorporated into helicopter design, making them faster and more powerful, although still not as fast as planes. Again, that's those pesky laws of physics getting in the way. You can only spin rotors so fast before the blades approach the speed of sound. And then we run into the same drag problems that the old prop liners had, as we talked about before. Still, helicopters have a number of advantages over aeroplanes, even if they're not as quick. They can both take off vertically and hover in place, two things that aeroplanes, generally speaking, cannot do. And so they're uniquely useful for these reasons. Helicopters are used for all sorts of things, transportation, tourism, search and rescue, firefighting and ambulance services, aerial observation for news and media. Uh, And that's in addition to all of their military applications, everything from logistics with transport helicopters like the Boeing CH-47 Chinook, which can carry a 10-tonne payload, or combat with attack helicopters like the Boeing AH-64 Apache, armed to the teeth with chain guns, rockets and missiles. So yes, helicopters are a very important part of aviation, even if they don't play as big a role as aeroplanes. Uh, And before we finish talking about them, I want to give you a little gift, another, well, actually, for you to enjoy. The word helicopter comes from Greek, right? Helix, meaning spiral, and pteron, meaning wing. Pteron is also the root of words like pterodactyl. And so this word makes sense. Helicopter, spiral, wing. Uh, except in English, at least, we tend to divide the word extremely incorrectly. The division of the word is not helicopter. So when we use heli as a prefix in words like helipad or copter as a suffix in words like quadcopter, this is wrong. It is wrong, 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 wrong. It is an etymological crime. The correct division of the word helicopter is helicopter, meaning that we shouldn't be saying helipad, we should be saying helicopad. And we shouldn't be saying quadcopter, we should be saying quadpater. So you now can be the life of your next party by correcting people on their Greek etymology. Think of all the friends you'll make. Anyway... With around 20,000 words across three episodes, we have finally ended up with a far more in-depth overview of the history of flight than I expected here. And despite all of that, I still feel like there's stuff that I missed out or had to skip over. There's just so much to cover with flight and how it has influenced and changed human civilization. From its beginnings with things like kites and sky lanterns, right through to the supersonic aircraft of today, humans have always, as I said to begin these episodes, we have always been fascinated by the idea of flight. And in today's globalised, interconnected world, where you can get aboard a plane and hours later be in a completely different part of the world, it's difficult to fully appreciate how flight and aviation has changed modern life. People And things can move around the world at speeds that would have been unimaginable to our ancestors. Even a century ago, the thought that the average person could board a plane and fly somewhere, or even just receive a letter or a package from half a world away via the air, we take these things for granted. But without flight, without air travel or transport, think how different the world would be. It took us a long time to get going, but the 20th century saw us seize control of the skies and make them our own. And today, our mastery of the heavens above us has forever changed the way that we live our lives. We're more connected thanks to air travel. We have access to more things from further away thanks to air transport. And we are better than ever at one of humanity's favourite pastimes, killing one another as now we can do it from the air, very effectively indeed. How marvellous. In all seriousness, however, flight is one of the most important technologies in human history. And it's important to remember, we're not finished. Aviation of all kinds will continue to change, develop, improve and grow. And already, as I mentioned, we're not just flying on our planet, on Earth. At some point in the future, 
humanity will have to leave Earth and take not just to the skies, but to the stars. And already, we've begun to make contact with and investigate other planets. And already, we have begun to demonstrate our mastery of other skies. Skies on other planets. In 2021, a small helicopter, not much bigger than a metre long, was transported to Mars with a Perseverance rover. And on the 19th of April, 2021, the first ever human-controlled, powered flight on another planet took place when the little helicopter named Ingenuity took off in the thin Martian atmosphere and hovered in the air for almost 40 seconds. And Ingenuity is still up there on Mars, still operational, flying up every now and again to scout around, take pictures and send information back to Earth. And attached to Ingenuity, just under the solar panel that charges its batteries, is, very fittingly, a small piece of the cloth used to make the right flyer all those years ago. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. At long last, we have come to the end of our very, very lengthy overview of the history of flight. And I do hope you enjoyed it. It did get a little out of control in terms of length, but I hope this is content that you nonetheless enjoyed. Going deep on a topic isn't something we do all the time with half-assed history, but as I've said so many times, I felt like this deserved it. It's such a critical part of human technology and scientific advancement, and it's such a huge part of day-to-day life on, on Earth in the 21st century that I thought that it deserved well, not just a second look, but a, but a third look as well. So I hope you got something out of it. Back to, uh, well, hopefully some shorter stuff next week. We'll see how we go. Uh, but I want to hear your feedback, of course. Head to halfhousehistory.net and use the contact form to get in touch. It's been so good to hear from listeners and uh, and get across what they think of these episodes. Um, and I appreciate people still sending in topics for uh, for different things that I could get across in, in the coming weeks. Make sure you send in topics long and short alike because uh, starting, I believe, next week or maybe it's the week after, we are going to have quarter-assed history. We're going to start having two podcasts a week, one long, one short. And so I am looking for shorter topics to get across, ones that will take you know about five to ten minutes to, uh, to get into. So please do head over to the website, use the contact form to get in touch, and it's there also you'll find links to the merch shop over at Public and the Patreon. If you want to support the show directly on patreon.com, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, all sorts of bonus stuff over there, ad-free listening, behind-the-scenes things, show notes, uncut episodes, exclusive merch, and early access to... Uh, to, uh, to all the episodes as they come out. So uh, thank you so much to all the Patreons there uh, supporting me week in and week out. You are extremely appreciated, my friends. And thank you to the people who are spreading the word of half Fast History. We are getting more and more listeners every week, and it's great to have each and every one of you on board. Whether you're an old listener, a new listener, or you're somewhere in between, it's so good to have you as part of the show. Anyway, that is that for this week, and we'll be back next week with more half Fast History. Until then, of course, closing out the show with a question posed by... Mm, this is a, a very curious name on Reddit. I don't know exactly what this one... Mm. This person's name seems to be Gina, which is just a, a, a regular name, and then they have a something of a prefix in front of their name, which is Tatumaiva. So this is Tatumaiva Gina, who asks... Why, why did so many people in the 1940s confuse Superman with birds and planes? Did there used to be human-shaped aeroplanes? <laughs> <laughs>